This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 589. Hi, it's Jack. On today's episode, we're pleased to feature CFO Bob Feller of Workforce Software. First, we have a COVID-19 briefing for you. The two-minute briefing you're about to hear is with CFO Tomer Pinchus of Cryon. We spoke to Tomer in early April uh, from Israel, which is where he's based. The majority of the population in Israel are currently in the shelters in their place. We do have the ability to go for work. You have the ability to about 15% of each employees within a company to basically work from the office and from a factory, etc. The majority of the people work from home. I was in Italy kind of in the mid, mid-February with few days in the office. Then uh, when I came back for, uh, uh, from London, I got a text pretty much from the government, from the cellular company, that due to the fact that on mid-February I was in Italy, I need to get to self-quarantine for the rest of the days until I'll complete uh, two weeks. I think the action that the government took about two to three weeks before the, before the rest of the world, the action that was, was taken in Israel, it's kind of, I would say compared to the world, was quite drastic and pretty much in a few weeks before the rest of the world. But what, what we anticipate or what we learned during this process especially for a software company, that first, we can work from any place in the world. Secondly, you know, it's sometimes even more organized to work from home. Uh, We pretty much organize working from Zoom for the entire entire company. We are facing some challenges with our customers because due to the fact that we are working with enterprise customers and many things that we use to install on-prem and to meet the customer face-to-face, this is kind of a challenging we are facing. I do believe that post this crisis, the, the entire environment worldwide will be different. But due to the fact that we providing solution for automation and simplify certain things with the customer, from one angle we have certain challenges. From the from the other angle, we see a huge huge opportunity and needs uh, for our product. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Bob Feller, CFO of Workforce Software. We've been fortunate to have a number of alumni from the Salesforce finance team as guests in the last uh, six months. And Bob is yet another one. There's little question Salesforce has a way of making the customer part of your DNA. Some of the best takeaways on today's show, no surprise, will be about the customer and what Bob shares with us. Our interview with Bob Feller of Workforce Software begins after this. 
In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Bob Feller, CFO of Workforce Software. Bob, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Bob, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask you to look back for us and share with us what were those experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role? What comes to mind? Absolutely. Well, uh, it's it's kind of strange looking back at my career that uh, I've been working for uh, 30 years now. Um, certainly don't feel like kind of the old guy with all this experience to share uh, but I, but I have gone through a, a, a few different decades and the ups and downs. So you know, I do I do a lot of mentoring and interviewing. And when I talk to uh, kids coming out of college or coming out of public accounting, uh, I do share some things about what I did uh, with my college experience and sort of early career and sort of the choices as I made as I got to the CFO role. So the first step for me was really making the decision in college not to be not to go to business school. I really thought that I would eventually go get my MBA and I wanted to have a more general uh, kind of liberal arts experience with a focus on where I thought I would ultimately go, which is finance and accounting. Um, and it just so happened that when I took my first accounting class, which, you know, nobody grows up wanting to be an accountant, I don't think. Um, but when I took that first accounting class, I found that uh, everybody was complaining about it as a prerequisite for business school. And me and my friend, uh, Scott, uh, who I shared some of my career with, found it extremely easy and just very natural. And it's not that I was in love with accounting, but I thought, boy, if something is really easy and something is uh, really crucial to business, I better do more of this. So I was uh, an economics major, but I took every accounting class in business school um, because the economy just wasn't, uh, you know, coming out of uh, the late 80s uh, and in the early 90s, um, it was okay, uh, but getting a job was not a slam dunk. Um, and accounting was the one profession outside of, you know, maybe engineering or computer programming um, where uh, there, there was a lot of jobs. And so that was really the first step for me uh, was getting that accounting background, getting the background in business and then starting in public accounting. Right. Again, not where I thought I would end up when I started college. Uh, but at the time, it was the big eight public accounting firms. And 
uh, really getting recruited on campus and meeting with all of them. I just thought that would be a really great basis for me to start my business career. And so what I tell people when they when they say, you know, I want to start uh, at a startup or, you know, I want to have some kind of a strategy job. Uh, what I often tell people is get get a background in basics, you know, work at a big company that maybe gives you some rigor, teaches you how to manage your time, how to be customer facing. Um, to be perfectly frank, I absolutely hated almost every minute of my four years as an auditor, but there was nothing like those years in terms of getting an evaluation after every single client assignment, uh, getting a lot of feedback, positive and often negative, uh, learning how to manage time, how to bill, how to be customer facing, how to dress in front of customers. I mean, all the, you know, for people that have come through public accounting, you know, there's just nothing like that background. I'm not saying everybody should be an accountant, uh, but, but that is something that I do tell people. And, you know, look, uh, big consulting firms like Accenture give you that rigor, some uh, rotation programs at big companies give you that rigor, but that's a really good start. So I would say that was my first formative experience. It was really taught me a lot of things and also showed me what I absolutely didn't want to do with my career. So, um, so that was kind of step one. Um, any questions about that, by the way, I do tend to ramble on a little bit. No, just, just like the emphasis you put on feedback and how important it can be early on. And, uh, just to mention, uh, the, uh, the big eight firm you mentioned was, uh, Arthur Anderson. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it is very strange for me because at the time, um, you know, not to brag, but coming out of college, I had offers from all eight and I chose what, you know, seemed like the most prestigious, the, uh, you know, among the largest and, you know, certainly could not have imagined back in 1990 uh, when I started there that it would eventually go out of business through uh, the Enron case. But uh, it, it is people are starting to forget that name. So um, I would say the next big step was going back to business school, um, and it was getting uh, that experience. Uh, and it was, again, I, I think I did things a little bit differently than other people. I knew I wanted to be in finance. Um, I had the accounting background, but I did not go crazy taking finance classes. Um, I really wanted to get a broad business education. So I took a lot of marketing classes. I took a lot of organizational development, uh, which were probably my favorite classes. I, I, I was fortunate to go to Michigan Business School, uh, Ross now, that doesn't require you to really major. You can call yourself a finance major. You can call yourself a marketing major. There, at least at the time, there was no requirement for that. It was a resume thing. Um, but, but that's really where I emphasize that I, and I think that made me a much more, you know, prepared me, uh, to be a more complete, uh, business leader. And again, coming out of business school, uh, and this was, so fast forward, this was the, uh, mid to late nineties at the very start of the dot-com and the technology boom, and people were starting to go to startups. And again, I thought I really needed that uh, bigger company experience, maybe not the huge company, but I never worked in a company. I was an auditor. So actually getting in and getting into a company was, was pretty big for me and uh, being a part of a rotation program. 
Uh, so that was my first experience. But then really two years later, uh, living in San Francisco in the late 90s uh, was not necessarily the time uh, to be a big company. So I did embark on my uh, startup career journey, which I've pretty much been doing ever since for, for 20 plus years, various degrees uh, of, of startups. Well, I have to say, uh, there is a good number of technology companies in your background. Uh, there's a few surprises along the way. Certainly, you were at, at Clorox for a, a couple of years. Um, one of your startups, I suppose, was in the sports and entertainment realm. So while your background is largely tech, there are a, a few uh, surprises along the way. Uh, would you agree with that uh, assessment or what would you what would you tell us? Well, you're, I, I think I think you're partially correct, but but yes, I didn't mention Clorox, but I would say that was a part of what I was saying uh, about getting that big company experience uh, and getting into a rotation. Uh, the company I joined out of business school, uh, Tandem Computers, was about a three billion dollar public company uh, that was acquired by Compaq a, a year later, and then HP a couple years after that. Um, and so uh, I, I had a choice to move to Houston, uh, didn't want to live, leave the Bay Area, but didn't feel like I was ready uh, to uh, go to startups. I really wanted, again, to get exposure uh, to larger companies' finance functions. So Clorox, uh, even though it wasn't in technology, had a fantastic MBA rotation program. And I got to work in FP&A. I got to work in Treasury. Um, and uh, it, it, again, it was a really great experience, and, and this is what I, I tend to tell people, is make sure you get that underlying experience in a lot of different finance areas. You know, accounting is not the same thing as FP&A, is not the same thing as Treasury, is not the same as cost accounting, uh, which I also got to do for a period of time. Uh, so that was, uh, I know Clorox looks a little different on my resume. Uh, but it made a ton of sense at the time. And right out of that, uh, as I was getting those recruiter calls for startups, um, I, you know, eventually I did jump on one. And it's not on my resume, but funny story, um, I was there for four days before it folded. Uh, so, um, you know, left, uh, left a perfectly good job with benefits and bonuses and uh, all the bleach and cleaning products I wanted. Um, and went to a startup, and uh, they they just they flat out lied to me about what was happening there. Uh, but the uh, the startup market was so hot, and it happened so quickly. I didn't actually like a lot of the recruiters I was working with. I hadn't had a chance to tell them that I started a new job, so I was still getting called, and I had a new job two weeks later. Um, and then that company, North Systems. Uh, was an early SaaS company, like before it was even called SaaS, uh, in the CRM space. And we ran right into the dot-com bust, uh, you know, ran out of funding. There was no new funding uh, to be had. You know, at the time, a lot of the companies were spending all the funding they had with the expectation of growth and getting the next round of funding. And that was just how everybody did it. And that was really my first exposure to that. And nobody really saw the bus coming. And then, you know, we were in the middle of raising around and it all dried up. So I ended, I, I ended up working on closing the company, which, again, experience that everybody should probably have, but not, not anybody should wish to have. 
uh, but literally had a, a quasi garage sale selling off our equipment in our office building to whoever was there to raise as much money as we could to pay off our equipment lenders. Um, so, you know, went to another company, thought it was much more robust, a uh, company that had raised over $100 million, had uh, people like Bill Bradley on the board, uh, you know, big time investors, um, and lasted there for two years before that ended up not going anywhere. And at that point, my wife was seriously telling me to that this startup experience uh, was probably foolhardy and it was never going to result. These stock options uh, were never going to result in anything. And, uh, you know, I had, a, had an offer from PeopleSoft, which was a nice, solid company. And I, I happened to meet the CFO of Salesforce, who was new there. And, uh, you know, I kind of knew Mark Benioff socially because we're about the same age. And, uh, you know, kind of had a feeling about that one. Like it's, it's easy to look back on Salesforce and, and say that it's a no-brainer. Uh, but, but back in uh, 2002, coming out of the big bust, uh, and you can look at, you know, kind of the historical stock market trends because everybody's looking at kind of the drop that we've had over the past two weeks. And the last time that happened, well, that happened in 2000. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a risky move, but it just uh, that that company spoke to me in what they were trying to accomplish and build, uh, you know, the cloud uh, software market. So I uh, so obviously worked out for me. Um, and really springboarded me into uh, the next phase of my career where I came in as a controller. It was my third controllership job, which at a startup, you basically manage finance um, and the CFO, you know, owns all the admin functions and does a lot of the external thing, uh, things with customers and investor relations. Um, and that one coming out of that, I was like, OK, I'm, I'm ready to be CFO you know, I've kind of seen it all at this point. Obviously, I hadn't seen it all, uh, but but certainly felt that way. I just want to point out you were there from 2003 to 2007, which will let everyone know that you were there during those really formative years, I, I have to imagine. Um, just want to mention, was was uh, Steve Cakebread the CFO at that time or? Yeah, he was the one. He's the one who uh, who hired me and, and Steve had your classic large technology company background. He was at Silicon Graphics. He was at Hewlett Packard. And then he was CFO of Autodesk, all super well-known companies. And Salesforce was his first startup. And so, you know, where he and I had the connection was, uh, you know, we he had that big company background. He certainly had the gravitas and knew how to big build big uh, finance teams. Uh, but he needed somebody who had the uh, startup experience and just like the hands-on, hey, how do you build a financial system? How do you implement, you know, an Oracle or, or something like that? Um, you know, how do you, you know, prepare to go to go public? Uh, because the mandate was we're going to go public with 18, within 18 months. So, yeah, that, he was the guy. Well, in addition to Steve, we've had a number of the Salesforce uh, finance alumni on the on the show, so we're happy to happy to have one more. We want to touch on. Uh, we might have one or two more career questions for you during the mentoring round, but we want to find out about workforce, and uh, we want to uh, begin by just asking you: tell us about 
um, workforce software. And, uh, you know, let us know what, what are, uh, these companies off this company's offerings today and what are some of the challenges you're addressing out there? Sure. Ab- absolutely. So workforce in simple terms, uh, we do all the messy things between an HR system and the payroll system. And I got to tell you prior to, uh, you know, a few years ago, I didn't know there was anything in between, right? Cause working for companies that are largely white collar with salary employees, that's all you really need. Uh, but I'll give you a couple examples of companies that have extremely complex pay policies, um, lots of hourly employees, uh, shifts, scheduling, all that stuff. Um, that is what we do. And we, we, what we say is we make uh, work, work easy uh, for both the managers and the employees, right? So we're that system where you clock in, clock out, you manage your schedule, you report your absence and vacation. Uh, doesn't sound very sexy, but it's a really big market and is really important. Um, one, of, one of the things that drew me to workforce is that it reminded me when I started at Salesforce and we were up against uh, you know, the giant company Siebel, which was then acquired by Oracle, and, and everybody thought we didn't have a chance because we were up against such an entrenched, well-known competitor. And, and of course, the difference is, you know, we were in the cloud and we were selling it uh, on a SaaS basis and we were more modern, right? We came up with a newer system. And that's really what we're doing with Workforce. We have a new Workforce suite. Uh, we're up against Kronos, which is, you know, about 15 times as big as we are. Uh, but they've been in it for uh, 40 years. They've got a lot of really expensive clocks and maintenance out there in the market. And really, every deal we close, we pretty much take market share from Kronos. So we like to say we're Zeus uh, to Kronos. And uh, if you don't know your Greek mythology, uh, you can Google it and uh, see what, what uh, Zeus, who was the son of Kronos, uh, ended up doing to Kronos, who was eating his children um, that, that, that is, that is, that is what we do. And it's, you know, it's been fun. This is actually the longest job I've ever had. I've been here for uh, five and a half years. And, and prior to that, uh, the longest I've ever stayed anywhere was four years, uh, which tends to be a tax CFO cycle, three, four years. Uh, but I'm still here and we got a long runway. It's pretty exciting. Let's just return uh, for a moment for, to when you first stepped in the door there. What did what did you knew, need to do to begin moving the organization, the team there in the direction you wanted? And I'm, I'm curious, did you reorganize things uh, shortly after your arrival? Yeah, great question. So uh, where my career has evolved is, you know, I, I, I tend to be a builder and a fixer. Um, and I come into situations when some kind of a transformational event either happened or is about to happen. Um, and, you know, obviously going back to, to Salesforce where we were uh, building the company and prepping for an IPO and I had to build the team um, to workforce where the company was uh, founder led uh, for a number of years. And, you know, the founder did a great job. Uh, building uh, building the company, but it was really his first job out of business school, right? His first job of, out of business school was CEO, founder CEO, and that happens all the time. 
Um, so, you know, the company did a lot of things well, but on the administration side, had a lot of work to do. Uh, when we were acquired uh, by Inside Venture Partners uh, in 2014, uh, I was the first hire that they made. They were looking for uh, an experienced uh, SaaS CFO um, who really knew how to put together not just the team, uh, but the appropriate SaaS company metrics, KPIs, um, and how to work with a private equity firm. And then, of course, build a team to support that. So, yes, it took time. Uh, but, uh, I, but that was, that is part of what I do is I transform the organization really through a combination. It's not like I, I come in and aim to replace everybody. There's a lot of great talent at these companies, uh, but it's really putting them in the right place and in position to succeed and then making sure that they know what they're in for, uh, coming out of what the company used to be into the transformation that it's going to be. So we always do like to ask uh, about the metrics, and we'll make some uh, assumptions here that the metrics you're keeping an eye on are mostly the the SaaS uh, metrics that we're so familiar with, ARR, annual recurring revenue, and of course, lifetime customer value is one of your favorite pastime calculations. Um, are we are we correct? In these yeah, assumptions, it's, it's, it's all those things. And I think uh, I, I don't think I'm going to have any particular insights that are not out there with pretty standard uh, SAS metrics. I think I, I think they're good. Um, sometimes they're hard to put together when you don't have that uh, the data or the system. So a lot of what I had to work on uh, was actually put in the underlying systems um, and put in the data. Uh, the ability to collect the data and organize it and get the people that can get insights out of that data. The metrics are, are all the same. You know, it's all about ARR, lifetime value, uh, you know, customer retention and churn. Um, you know, not, nothing particularly unusual about our business. All those, all those things are really important. Of course, cash management always comes into play when you're a growth company and you're a private equity owner. Was there ever a time you just described for us that you had to get the right people in place so you could get those data insights as you went about that uh, periods of frustration where you just weren't getting the numbers or the data that you thought you could? And maybe it was about making another hire. Maybe it was about assign making different assignments. Maybe it was just getting people focused on what mattered. Are those the types of challenges you've addressed along the way? Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the biggest challenge, right? When you have when you have the other key pieces to business success, when you have, you know, great management team, you have the right investor, you have the right market, um, you know, the right competitive situations. Those are those are kind of the top things um, for me. It's really uh, it's, it's getting in the right kind of people uh, for the job. And these kinds of jobs are not for everybody because you just don't always know what you're going to be doing when you walk in. And there's a lot of fire drills. And uh, there are people, and I'm one of them, who enjoy uh, some level of change and chaos and transformation. It's not for everybody. And it's not an instant thing where you identify that in people. Um, but it's, it's more about that than the specific skill sets. Um, you know, I would say, you know, finance and accounting are just not rocket science. There's a lot of things you can teach people, uh, but, but it's really about, 
you know, do, do they have those core values that work for growth companies? And some people love it and some people think they're going to love it and then need to go back to, you know, bigger companies that are a little more stable. I'm, I'm just wondering now if we were to compare you with your peers out there, finance leaders in growth software, SaaS companies, what sets you apart? Is it that when you talk to the board or when you talk to the management, other uh, top leaders in the company, you put an emphasis on, we need to pay attention to this because this is what really triggers growth. I'm wondering if you find yourself in situations from time to time where you're measuring something because it was part of a routine, a legacy routine that maybe uh, was before your time, but still some, uh, whether it's stakeholders, board members, whoever are turning to you asking for it, and you have to be sort of the, the truth teller. Maybe. Um, yeah, so, and, and I think you have a couple of different questions in there. So uh, I think the first part of kind of what makes me different uh, as, as a finance leader um, and, and it's, it's really broader than finance, I, I would say it's two things. I think one is I have extreme focus on customers. And, and that really comes, like how that got into my DNA uh, was one from my Arthur Anderson days where our, our managing partner would say, everybody sells, right? Everybody is customer focused. You, you think you know, you're just a junior auditor, but everybody is customer focused. Like we don't have anything without our customers. Um, so, 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 so that's one for me. And we have an executive sponsorship program and I'm very active in actually getting out to my customers, not my, our customers. Uh, but I have a set of customers that are, you know, all the executives have a list. And I'm very, very aggressive in getting out there and understanding customer issues because I think that makes me a better executive because I hear directly from them uh, what is happening um, and just try to have as many of those uh, live or even face-to-face -face interactions as I can. So, so that's one. And two is I think of myself more as a business partner uh, than I do as uh, you know, a finance person or, you know, I manage IT, HR and legal. So I, I do need to periodically pull back and say, you know, I've been more of an admin function leader for the past decade, 15 years or so. It's, it hasn't been just finance uh, since Salesforce. But for all of those functions, what I get across constantly uh, to my team is you guys are all business partners, whether you have you all have customers. Right. And 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 that's what's really important. So. I am, you know, it's funny, I'm working from home today and, and my wife asked me how many times I talked to our CEO today. And it, and it was a lot, right? And and there's a reason uh, that, that we're constantly talking because it's not just financial advice, it's not just the metrics, that's all pretty routine. It's, you know, really being a true business partner um, is, is, my, is my constant focus. It's, it's business and it's, uh, and it's customer. So hopefully that answers your question. I'm going to pause here because you said something I really loved. Your wife came in and asked you that question. She's asking better questions than I am, to be honest. And I think it's pretty revealing that obviously you're you're you know working in step with the CEO every day. How many times a day do you speak to your CEO? If I was to ask finance leaders that question, do you think that's a good measure of collaboration 
between the two uh, C-suite leaders? I, I, I do. And maybe, you know, it's that I think to, the reason she asked it today is because, you know, we're, we're all going a little bit crazy with the COVID-19 situation. Um, I, I think the telling part, I think there's a couple ways to ask that question. One is how often, you know, make it a little more open-ended, how often do you speak uh, with a CEO uh, but then in a crisis situation or when something is happening, that is how many times a day, right? So who is, who is you know, are you the trusted advisor uh, that they're talking to most often? Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be the COO, it could be the, the CRO, right? It could be all of them. Uh, but are you in that role or are you just considered the person who is putting together the numbers and making sure that compliance is okay. Like the CEOs, uh, the CFOs, as you know, wear multiple hats. And I absolutely do not want to minimize the compliance, the security hat, you know, the uh, the financial reporting hat, the audit, the tax, all that stuff is really essential and has to be done. But that that's just the price of admission, right? Those, those things just have to happen. You got to get them right. Uh, but you can also hire people who are really good at those specific things. Uh, but it's that next level, I think, to be a world-class CFO. Uh, you have to be a business leader and you have to be a business partner. So having just uh, touched on uh, COVID-19, let's ask you uh, what steps you're taking here to uh, prepare and manage uh, the business going forward in light of COVID-19. And, and, and let me just take a step back on on the situation and, and, and the impacts that it has and how, you know, we're trying to prepare. Um, you know, there's there's the the actual situation, right? The health and safety situation, which is pretty unprecedented. And I think everybody is, you know, trying to do the right things in various ways and various timeliness. Um, and then there's the business impact. And, and I can tell you, having been now through two major crashes in my career, that experience um, is, uh, has been very valuable in this, um, you know, because I, I, I don't, I don't want to say that I saw the big stock drop coming, the stock market drop, but I, I sort of did because it really felt like the cascade of bad news and getting to potentially the credit crunch that is going to happen and then just the all the different dominoes falling uh, the impacts like I, I just remember not being as prepared uh back in uh 2007 2008 you know we 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 saw it happening we were reacting but there was a famous uh PowerPoint uh, that Sequoia, uh, Sequoia Capital, the famous venture firm, sent out, um, and and it was it was called R.I.P. Good Times, right? I mean, there was a historic uh, startup run and uh, bull market run, and when they sent that out, and it was basically, you know, you guys are on your own, right? To so all the startup CEOs, CFOs, there was a big meeting, like you guys got to figure out how to make your cash flow last. There's not another round. Um, and that obviously I had shut down the company before uh, eight years earlier. So that had happened to me before. So not to overreact, but that is essentially 
where we were getting to and those um, those types of communications I know are starting to come. And so what, what happens is that everybody tightens their belt, right? And, and so you have to be prepared as a CFO and a CEO to take steps to make sure that your company gets through this. Even if, the, even if it's a short-term uh, disruption, which this probably will be short-term being, you know, like the financial crisis was systemic and, you know, took, you know, almost a decade to unwind. Uh, you know, this does feel like a, uh, you know, more of a, an external shock, uh, but still the financial shock is going to be real. So you have to be prepared with actions that, hey, what if your customers just stop paying your bills, right? We have 1,100 customers around the world. Some of them are Asia. Some of them are in Europe. Some of them are entertainment business. We have several large airlines as customers. If I'm an airline, I'm just going to say, I am not paying my bills for 60 days. What are you going to do, right? That's what I would do as a, as a CFO of, say, Delta, right? Um, and, and if enough people do that, you know, what does that mean to us as a company that's in a growth mode where we've been spending more um, than, than we're taking in? At the same time, you don't want to miss out on opportunities if they're still there. You don't want to stop doing business. You have to continue to serve your customers. We're a SaaS business. So what are, how can we reassure our customers that our data centers will stay online? If they call in, they will get support. Right. So there is a there's an operational process that we're going through to make sure that, hey, if employees are working from home, can they still do the essential customer facing things? Um, you know what? So that that's the operational. That's just an example. That's the operational side. The financial exercise that we're doing and everybody should be doing is kind of the light, medium, worst case scenario of what happens with the economy, right? Um, so that's, and this is all very fresh. So we started the process, um, but things change every day. You know, as of, as of yesterday, my kids were going to school today and they were shutting down for one day on Monday. Um, by the end of the day yesterday, the governor closed all the Michigan schools for two weeks, starting on Monday. And then an hour later, the school said, well, don't come in on Friday either, right? Because that doesn't make sense. So, um, and, and that's what impact is that going to have? So, so things just, just continue to happen, and uh, we're trying to get ahead of it as much as we can and then be ready to react. Well, I've asked you several extra questions, so I really have to uh, quickly jump to our, our finance strategic moment question which is where your lines of sight into the organization during the course of your career allowed you to see something that you responded to. Was it an opportunity? Was it a risk? When we ask for a finance strategic moment. Well, I, I think probably the best example, um, and hopefully it fits what you're trying to ask, but really in the early days of uh, at Salesforce when we were building the financial models and we were building the recurring revenue models before the, you know, before ARR was even a thing, um, you know, I, I could really see 
that from a working capital standpoint, uh, this thing could really be a cash cow very quickly. Unlike other startups uh, that didn't have that recurring revenue model by, you know, billing in advance and having the certainty of a contract and getting that cash ahead of, you know, spending a lot of the money. But then if you provide the ex extreme customer service, um, you, you can rely on a certain level of that retention and beyond a year or so, the margins on that are just huge. I mean, I don't think I'm telling you anything you didn't know about the recurring revenue model for SaaS, but there was no SaaS what we did, right? So that was, uh, I mean, there were other companies that were doing similar things, but there was no business cases. So in building that and designing that, you know, the natural, um, you know, this natural posture for a controller for a head of FP&A, and I did both sides, is really control expenses. And particularly coming out of the dot-com bus and some of the lessons from that of just not spending like crazy um, ahead of revenue, um, you know, the, it was natural to be kind of the budget stopper. And where we very quickly pivoted, and I you certainly can't take all the credit for this, but I was I was a part of it, was, you know what, it is okay to invest in things that are going to drive bookings, because bookings are more important than revenue. And that has now had, had not really been a thing in, in as much um, in in these kinds of models. Um, so we we paid some crazy commission rates uh, because we had to get people who were working at Oracle and SAP and Siebel, and they were used to paying on licenses. And we were spending a crazy amount of money on databases and, uh, you, you know, servers and, and, and things like that, right, to build it all up. But we were cash flow positive much quicker than you would have thought. Uh, given given our actual PL, right? Our PL would show big losses and we'd be cash flow positive. And as long as I was seeing that, you know, again, we, we had to be prudent, but it was like, let's go. Like we are seeing the customer demand. This message is resonating. Let's shoot for a hundred percent bookings growth because that's going to drive cash flow and whatever we have to do. Uh, you know, can make it work. So this was where we really had good synergy uh, between Mark's vision of what, you know, a cloud software company could be um, and uh, and then the financial thesis for it, uh, which we kind of created at the time. So bookings trump revenue. <laughs> when we return, CFO Bob Feller enters the mentoring round. We'll be back. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, 
we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back and we're entering the mentoring round with CFO Bob Feller. What is it that's getting you excited about finance and business today? What is it? Not 10 years ago, but today. Yeah, and I think it's the same thing that I've been talking about. It's that more and more uh, companies are asking finance people to be business partners. Um, You know, that is just not just my thing. Uh, I have maniacal focus on being a business partner, uh, but that is what differentiates strong finance leaders. I've got a team, you know, I don't call them financial analysts or accountants. I call them finance business partners, and they're assigned to a business unit. Um, And uh, that's exciting. That's more exciting than just, you know, doing, you know, the accounting part is, is important. Financial reporting is important, but feeling like you're part of the business um, is, is is really bigger than that. So I think that's for the finance industry. That's been a trend for a while, uh, but but I think we're all the way there. Uh, what's exciting about business is just it continues, uh, can continues to transform. Like you, you can't sit still. You know we're uh, you know people ask me how uh, you know how you can live in in Detroit after uh, you know spending so much time in in the, in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's that, you know, even though we're surrounded by auto companies, auto companies are now tech companies. They're really not, you know, there's, they certainly have a supply chain and there's certainly a manufacturing component to it, obviously, but what they do and where they're doing all the hiring, it's technology. Now, I want you to look back one last time for us and, uh, think about when you first stepped into a CFO role for the first time. What is it that you wish someone had told you? As you look back and you think about that, that first week, that first month, maybe the first quarter, if there was just one piece of advice you could have given yourself, what would it have been? Yeah, I, w- I would say it's uh, listen more than talk. Um, you know, I, I, I really, coming out of that Salesforce experience, which was such a rocket ship, um, I really thought I was hot shit and, uh, you know, I was getting, a, you know, again, it was kind of like coming out of college when I had all the offers from the big eight. Um, and, uh, and I, a lot of people were recruiting me. Um, and, and I really thought I had a lot of the answers, maybe not all the answers, but I thought I was, I had a lot of the answers and, uh, I learned to be, uh, much more humble as I've gotten more experience and I say I don't know much more often, and I uh, ask questions much more often. Whereas before, I really felt like, particularly my first CFO job, it was like I had to have all the answers. I'm in the C chair, and if somebody asks me a question, I better give an answer. And and I'm just a lot lot more cautious in assuming that I know the answer. Now, now do you have a personal habit or some routine that you do daily that you believe is in some way contributed to your success professionally 
So it's a personal habit or routine that you have that you believe in some way may have contributed to your success on the professional side. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there's there's a lot of different things that I've uh, I've developed uh, over over the years. Um, I I tend to think that most people can only focus on a couple key things at a time. And so what I try to do as much as possible is just going into every period, whatever that is, year, uh, quarter, month, day, just knowing what my priorities are. So the, you know, the first thing that I do in the morning, you know, I look at my calendar, I look at my top priorities and I say, okay, what what is the most important thing today? Like what's what's today all about? If I get nothing else done, because I never get just there's just always an infinite amount of work to do. Um, if 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 I don't get in, if I only get one thing done or two things done or make make headway on what are those things? So that's that's for me. Um, you know that's that's worked pretty well. How about a book? Uh, would you have a book you could recommend to us? So there are people out there who are voracious business book leaders. I am not one of them, and and, and I'm not, and I'm not going to say don't do it because there's some great books. And uh, if my boss is listening, he'd probably be mad because he's a big believer in in reading certain books. I am much, but I'm a voracious reader. What I tend to read is kind of the current information. So. I, I, I still get paper subscriptions. I get the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And my other advice that other people have given me in the past and it's getting harder and harder is, you know, read the national papers, read the business papers. You just get more out of it than just scanning the headlines, just looking at Apple News or, or, or whatever your aggregator is. I really do. I don't get through them all. Um, but I do get a lot of insights, particularly from the Wall Street Journal, uh, because there's just so much you find out about other businesses, other companies, other parts of the world. There are special things. Um, so it's those. And then, you know, there's just a lot of information out there, uh, obviously, on, you know, on the Internet, podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and, and so that's that's what I do. I would say you know, figure out what works for you. And um, when it comes to books, and again, this is this is my dirty little secret, I read the New York Times book review. And, uh, you know, if you ever read the New York Times book review, review of books, it is extremely dense. But if you read a two-page review of a nonfiction book, sometimes you get the point. And uh, so that's what I do. Yeah, that's a good. That's that's pretty tricky. It's very well written as well, so it's kind of enjoyable to read. Great, great insights there. We are finally at our last question, where we ask you to look forward for us and share with us your priorities as CFO of Workforce Software over the next twelve months. So, over the next twelve months, what are those priorities? Absolutely. So, you after after hearing me talk, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Uh, uh, customers is, is number one. So it's it's really whatever helps the business uh, retain customers, grow the customer base, uh, grow within the customer base. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can do to support that, and that my team does to support that. Um, that that is that is really uh, the highest uh, the highest priority for us. 
Um, you know, for for us as a company, uh, you know, innovation is is huge. So as as it is with any technology company, so again, supporting that innovation, um, it's probably more uh, on the IT side, uh, which which I also manage, and working closely with all of our organizations to make them more effective, uh, more efficient. And we have, you know, I won't bore you with our specific goals, but we do have specific uh, 12-month goals for that. And three, um, and it's one thing I haven't really talked about, is uh, is community. And the way we think about community is both our employees, our employee community, uh, but also the community that we're part of. And we're a global company, so we're part of the Michigan community. We're part of the Sydney, Australia community, the UK, you know, London area community. So we do, you know, support community activities, but also with employees. And when I wear my HR hat, um, you know, we have a number of initiatives around that as well. So it is it is much broader than kind of the traditional finance things uh, that CFOs think about. Bob Feller, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.